Chapter Thirty One of the Trail of the Lonesome Pine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cole McKinnon. The Trail of the Lonesome Pine by John Fox Jr. Chapter Thirty One. Before dawn, Hale and the doctor and the old miller had reached the pine, and there Hale stopped. Any farther, the old man told him, he would go only at the risk of his life from Dave or Bub, or even from any Fallon who happened to be hanging around in the bushes. For Hale was hated equally by both factions now. I'll wait up here until noon, Uncle Billy said Hale, and ask her for God's sake to come up here and see me. All right, I'll act, sir. But the old miller shook his head. Breakfastless, except for the munching of a piece of chocolate. Hale waited all the morning with his black horse in the bushes, some thirty yards from the lonesome pine. Every now and then he would go to the tree and look down the path, and once he slipped far down the trail and aside to a spur whence he could see the cabin in the cove. Once his hungry eyes caught sight of a woman's figure walking through the little garden, and for an hour after it disappeared into the house, he watched for it to come out again. But nothing more was visible, and he turned back to the trail to see Uncle Billy laboriously climbing up the slope. Hale waited and ran down to meet him, his face and eyes eager and his lips trembling. But again, Uncle Billy was shaking his head. No use, John, he said sadly. I got her out on the porch and axed her, but she won't come. She won't come at all? John, when one of them Tollivers gets white about the mouth, and their eyes gets to blazin', and they keeps quiet, they're plumb out o' reach of the Almighty Himself. June skeered me, but you mustn't blame her just now. You see, you got up that guard. You catched Roof and hung him, and she caught up thinkin' if you hadn't done that, her old daddy wouldn't be in there on his back nigh to death. You mustn't blame her, John. She's most out o' her head now. All right, Uncle Billy. Goodbye. Hale turned, climbed sadly back to his horse, and sadly dropped down the other side of the mountain and on through the rocky gap home. A week later, he learned from the doctor that the chances were even that old Judd would get well, but the days went by with no word of June. Through those days, June wrestled with her love for Hale and her loyalty to her father, who, sick as he was, seemed to have a vague sense of the trouble within her and shrewdly fought it by making her daily promise that she would never leave him. For as old Judd got better, June's fierceness against Hale melted, and her love came out the stronger because of the passing injustice that she had done him. Many times she was on the point of sending him word that she would meet him at the pine, but she was afraid of her own strength if she could see him face to face, and she feared she would be risking his life if she allowed him to come. There were times when she would have gone to him herself. Had her father been well and strong, but he was old, beaten, and helpless, and she had given her sacred word that she would never leave him. So once more she grew calmer, gentler still, and more determined to follow her own way with her own kin, though that way led through a breaking heart. She never mentioned Hale's name, she never spoke of going west, and in time Dave began to wonder not only if she had not gotten over her feeling for Hale. But if that feeling had not turned into a permanent hate, to him June was kinder than ever, because she understood him better, and because she was sorry for the hunted, hounded life he led, not knowing when on his trips to see her or to do some service for her father, he might be picked off by some Fallon from the bushes. 
So Dave stopped his sneering remarks against Hale, and began to dream his old dreams, though he never opened his lips to June, and she was unconscious of what was going on within him. By and by, as old Judd began to mend, overtures of peace came, singularly enough, from the Fallons, and while the old man snorted with contemptuous disbelief at them as a pretense to throw him off his guard, Dave began to actually believe that they were sincere, and straightway forged a plan of his own, even if the Tollivers did persist in going west. So one morning, as he mounted his horse at old Judd's gate, he called to June in the garden. I'm a-goin' over the gap. June paled, but Dave was not looking at her. "'What for?' she asked, steadying her voice. "'Business,' he answered. And he laughed curiously, and still without looking at her, he rode away. Hale sat in the porch of his little office that morning, and the honorary Sam Budd, who had risen to leave, stood with his hands deep in his pockets, his hat tilted far over his big googles, looking down at the dead leaves that floated like lost hopes on the placid mill-pond. Hale had agreed to go to England once more on the sole chance left him before he went back to Chain and Compass, the old land deal that had come to life, and between them they had about enough money for the trip. "'You'll keep an eye on things over there,' said Hale, with a backward motion of his head toward Lonesome Cove, and the Honorable Sam nodded his head. "'All I can.' "'Those big trunks of hers are still here,' the Honorable Sam smiled. "'She won't need them. I'll keep an eye on him, and she can come over and get what she wants every year or two, he added grimly, and Hale groaned. Stop it, Sam. All right. You ain't going to try to see her before you leave. And then at the look on Hale's face, he said hurriedly, All right, all right, and with a toss of his hands turned away, while Hale sat thinking where he was. Ruth Tulliver had been quite right as to the Red Fox. Nobody would risk his life for him. There was no one to attempt a rescue, and but a few of the guards were on hand this time to carry out the law. On the last day he had appeared in his white suit of tablecloth. The little old woman in black had made even the cap that was to be drawn over his face, and that too she had made of white. Moreover, she would have his body kept unburied for three days, because the red fox said that on the third day he would arise and go about preaching so that even in death the red fox was consistently inconsistent, and how he reconciled such a dual life at one and the same time, over and under the stars was, except to his twisted brain, never known. He walked firmly up the scaffold steps and stood there blinking in the sunlight. With one hand he tested the rope. For a moment he looked at the sky and the trees with a face that was white and absolutely expressionless. Then he sang one hymn of two verses, and quietly dropped into that world in which he believed so firmly, and toward which he had trod so strange a way on earth. As he wished, the little old woman in black had the body kept unburied for three days, but Red Fox never rose. With his passing, law and order had become supreme. Neither Tolliver nor Fallon came on the Virginia side for mischief and the desperados of two sister states, whose skirts are stitched together with pine and pin-oak along the crest of the Cumberland, confined their deviltries with great care to places long distant from the gap. John Hale had done a great work, but the limit of his activities was that state line, and the Fallons, ever threatening that they would not leave a Tolliver alive, could carry out those threats, and Hale not be able to lift a hand. It was his helplessness that was making him writhe now. 
Old Judd had often said he meant to leave the mountains. Why didn't he go now, and take June, for whose safety his heart was always in his mouth? As an officer, he was now helpless where he was, and if he went away he could give no personal aid. He would not even know what was happening, and he had promised Bud to go. An open letter was clutched in his hand, and again he read it. His coal company had accepted his last proposition. They would take his stock, worthless as they thought it, and surrender the cabin and two hundred acres of field and woodland in Lonesome Cove. That much, at least, would be intact. But if he failed in his last project now, it would be subject to judgments against him that were sure to come. So there was one thing more to do for June before he left for the final effort in England, to give back her home to her. And as he rose to do it now, somebody shouted at his gate, Hello! Hale stopped short at the head of the steps. His right hand shot like a shaft of light to the butt of his pistol, stayed there, and he stood astounded. It was Dave Tolliver on horseback, and Dave's right hand had kept hold of his bridle reins. Hold on, he said, lifting the other with a wide gesture of peace. I want to talk with you a bit. Still, Hale watched him closely as he swung from his horse. Come in, won't you? The mountaineer hitched his horse and slouched within the gate. Have a seat? Dave dropped to the steps. I'll sit here, he said, and there was an embarrassed silence for a while between the two. Hale studied young Dave Tolliver's face from narrowed eyes. He knew all the threats the Tollivers had made against him, the bitter enmity that he felt, and that it would last until one or the other was dead. This was a queer move. The mountaineer took off his slouched hat and ran one hand through his thick black hair. I reckon you've heard as how all our folks are sellin' out over the mountains. No, said Hale quickly. Well, there, and all of them are goin' west. Uncle Jug, Lordy, and June, and all our kinfolks. You didn't know that? No, repeated Hale. Well, they ain't closed all the trades yet, he said. And they might not go maybe afore spring. The Fallons say they are done now. Uncle Jud don't believe em, but I do, and I'm thinkin' I won't go. I've got a little money, and I want to know if I can't buy back Uncle Judd's house and a little ground around it. Our folks is tired of fighting, and I couldn't live on the other side of the mountain after they are gone, and keep as healthy as on this side. So I thought I'd see if I couldn't buy back June's old home, maybe, and a live there. Hale watched him keenly, wondering what his game was, and he went on. I know the house and land ain't worth much to your company, and as the coal vein has petered out, I reckon they might not ax much for it. It was all out now, and he stopped without looking at Hale. I ain't asking any favors, least not a you, and, and I thought my share of Moss Farm might be enough to get me that house and some of the other land. You mean to live there yourself? Yes. Alone? Dave frowns. I reckon that's my business. So it is. Excuse me. Hale lighted his pipe, and the mountaineer waited. He was a little sullen now. Well, the company has parted with the land. Dave started. Sold it? In a way, yes. Well, would you mind telling me who bought it? Maybe I can get it from him. It's mine now, said Hale quietly. Yawn? The mountaineer looked incredulous, and then he let loose a scornful laugh. You gonna live there? Maybe. Alone? 
That's my business. The mountaineer's face darkened, and his fingers began to twitch. Well, if you're talking about June, it's my business. It's always been, and it's always will be. Well, if I was talking about June, I wouldn't consult you. No, but I'd consult you like hell. I wish you had the chance, said Hale coolly. But I wasn't talking about June. Again Dave laughed harshly, and for a moment his angry eyes rested on the quiet mill pond. He went backward suddenly. You went over there and lonesome with your high notions and your slick tongue, and you took June away from me. But she wasn't good enough for you then. So you filled her up with your fool notions and sent her away to get her poor little head filled with furrin' ways so she could be fitten to marry you. You took her away from her daddy, her family, her kinfolks, and her home, and you took her away from me. And now she's been over there eating her heart out, just as she ed it out over here when she first left home. And in the end she got so highfalutin' that she wouldn't marry you. He laughed again, and Hale winced under the laugh and the lashing words and i know you air eatin your heart out too cause you can't get june and i'm hoping you'll suffer the torment o hell as long as you live gosh she hates you now think you're all knowin the world and women and books he spoke with vindictive and insulting slowness you bein such a fool that may all be true but i think you can talk better outside that gate the mountaineer, deceived by Hale's calm voice, sprang to his feet in a fury, but he was too late. Hale's hand was on the butt of his revolver, his blue eyes were glittering, and a dangerous smile was at his lips. Silently he sat, and silently he pointed his other hand at the gate. Dave laughed. Do you think I'd fight ye here? If ye killed me, you'd be elected county judge. If I killed you, what chance would I have o' getting away? I'd swing for it. He was outside the gate now, and unhitching his horse. He started to turn the beast, but Hale stopped him. "'Get on from this side, please.' With one foot in the stirrup, Dave turned savagely. "'Why don't you go up in the gap with me now, and fight it out like a man? I don't trust you. I get you over in the mountains some day. I've no doubt you will, if you have the chance from the bush.' Hale was getting roused now. "'Look here,' he said suddenly. You've been threatening me for a long time now. I've never had any feeling against you. I've never done anything to you that I hadn't to do. But you've gone a little too far now, and I'm tired. If you can't get over your grudge against me, suppose we go across the river outside the town limits, put our guns down, and fight it out, fist and skull. I'm your man, said Dave eagerly, looking across the street. Hale saw two men on the porch. Come on, he said. The two men were Bud and the new town sergeant. Sam, he said, this gentleman and I are going across the river to have a little friendly bout, and I wish you'd come along, and you too, Bill, to see that Dave here gets fair play. The sergeant spoke to Dave. You don't need nobody to see that you get fair play with them, too, but I'll go along just the same. Hardly a word was said as the four walked across the bridge and toward the thicket to the right. Neither Bud nor the sergeant asked the nature of the trouble, for either could have guessed what it was. Dave tied his horse, and, like Hale, stripped off his coat. The sergeant took charge of Dave's pistol, and Bud of Hale's. "'All you've got to do is keep him away from you,' said Bud. "'If he gets his hands on you, you're gone. You know how they fight, rough and tumble.' Hale nodded. He knew all that himself, 
and when he looked at Dave's sturdy neck and gigantic shoulders, he knew further that if the mountaineer got him in his grasp, he would have to gasp enough in a hurry or be saved by Bud from being throttled to death. "'Are you ready?' again Hale nodded. "'Go ahead, Dave,' growled the sergeant, for the job was not to his liking. Dave did not plunge toward Hale, as the three others expected. On the contrary, he assumed the conventional attitude of the boxer and advanced warily, using his head as a diagnostician for Hale's points, and Hale remembered suddenly that Dave had been away at school for a year. Dave knew something of the game, and the Honorable Sam straightaway was anxious. When the mountaineer ducked and swung his left, Bud's heart thumped, and he almost shrank himself from the terrific sweep of the big fist. "'God!' he muttered, for had the fist caught Hale's head, it must, it seemed, have crushed like an eggshell. Hale coolly withdrew his head, not more than an inch, it seemed to Bud's practiced eye, and jabbed his right with a lightning uppercut into Dave's jaw. That made the mountaineer reel backward with a grunt of rage and pain, and when he followed it up with a swing of his left on Dave's right eye and another terrific jolt with his right on the left jaw, and Bud saw the crazy rage in the mountaineer's face. He felt easy. In that rage, Dave forgot his science, as the Honorable Sam expected, and with a bellow he started at Hale like a cave-dweller to bite, tear, and throttle. But the lithe figure before him swayed this way and that like a shadow, and with every side step a fist crushed on the mountaineer's nose, chin, or jaw, until blinded with blood and fury, Dave staggered aside toward the sergeant with a cry of a madman. "'Give me my gun! I'll kill him! Give me my gun!' And when the sergeant sprang forward and caught in the mountaineer, he dropped weeping with rage and shame to the ground. "'You two just go back to town,' said the sergeant. "'I'll take care of him quick,' and he shook his head as Hale advanced. "'He ain't going to shake hands with you.' The two turned back across the bridge, and Hale went on to Bud's office to do what he was setting out to do when young Dave came. There he had the lawyer make out a deed in which the cabin in Lonesome Cove and the acres about it were conveyed in fee simple to June, her heirs and assigns forever. But the girl must not know until, Hale said, her father dies, or I die, or she marries. When he came out, the sergeant was passing the door. "'Ain't no use fightin' with one of them fellas that away," he said, shaking his head. "'If he whoops you, he'll crow over you as long as he lives, and if you whoop him, he'll kill you first chance he gets. You'll have to watch that fellow as long as you live, especially when he's drinkin'. He'll remember that lickin' and want revenge for it till the grave. One of you has got to die some day, sure.' And the sergeant was right. Dave was going through the gap at that moment, cursing, swaying like a drunken man, firing his pistol and shouting his revenge to the echoing gray walls that took up his cries and sent them shrieking on the wind up every dark ravine. All the way up the mountain he was cursing. Under the gentle voice of the big pine he was cursing still, and when his lips stopped his heart was beating curses as he dropped down the other side of the mountain. When he reached the river he got off his horse and bathed his mouth and his eyes again and he cursed afresh when the blood started afresh at his lips again. For a while he sat there in his black mood, undecided whether he should go to his uncle's cabin or go on home. But he had seen a woman's figure in the garden as he came down the spur, and the thought of June drew him to the cabin in spite of his shame and the questions that were sure to be asked.
When he passed around the clump of rhododendrons at the creek, June was in the garden still. She was pruning a rose bush with Bub's penknife, and when she heard him coming, she wheeled, quivering. She had been waiting for him all day, and like an angry goddess, she swept fiercely toward him. Dave pretended not to see her, but when he swung from his horse and lifted his sullen eyes, he shrank as though she had lashed him across them with a whip. Her eyes blazed with murderous fire from her white face. The penknife in her hand was clenched as though for a deadly purpose, and on her trembling lips was the same question that she had asked him at the mill. "'Have you done it this time?' she whispered, and then she saw his swollen mouth and his battered eyes. Her fingers relaxed about the handle of the knife. The fire in her eyes went swiftly down, and with a smile that was half pity, half contempt, she turned away. She could not have told the whole truth better in words, even to Dave, as he looked after his every pulse beat was a new curse, and if at that minute he could have had Hale's heart, he would have eaten it like a savage, raw. For a minute he hesitated, with reins in hands, as to whether he should turn now and go back to the gap to settle with Hale, and then he threw the reins over a post. He could bide his time yet a little longer, for a crafty purpose suddenly entered into his brain. Bub met him at the door of the cabin, and his eyes opened. "'What's the matter, Dave?' "'Oh, nothing,' he said carelessly. "'My horse stumbled coming down the mountain, and I went clean over his head. He raised one hand to his mouth, and still Bub was suspicious. "'Looks like you've been in a fight.' The boy began to laugh, but Dave ignored him and went into the cabin. Within, he sat where he could see through the open door. "'Where you been, Dave?' asked old Judd from the corner. Just then he saw June coming, and pretended to draw on his pipe. He waited until she sat down with an ear shot on the edge of the porch. "'Who do you reckon owns this house, and two hundred acres of land roundabouts?' The girl's heart waited apprehensively, and she heard her father's deep voice. "'The company owns it.' Dave laughed harshly. "'Not much. John Hale.' The heart out on the porch leapt with gladness now. He bought it from the company— it's just as well you're going away, Uncle Judd. He'd put you out. I reckon not. I got writing from the company, which allows me to stay here two year or more if I want to. I don't know. He's a slick one. I heard him say, put in Bub stoutly, that he see we stayed here just as long as we pleased. Well, said old Judd shortly, if we stay here by his favor, we won't stay long. There was a silence for a while. Then Dave spoke again for the listening ears outside, maliciously. I went over to the Gap to see if I couldn't get the place myself from the company. I believe the Fallons ain't going to bother us, and I ain't hankering to go west. But I told him that you all was going to leave the mountains, and going out there for good. There was another silence. He never said a word. Nobody had asked the question, but he was answering the unspoken one in the heart of June. And that heart sank like a stone. He's going away himself, going tomorrow, going to that same place he went before. England, some fella called it. Dave had done his work well. June rose unsteadily, and with one hand on her heart, and the other clutching the railing of the porch, she crept noiselessly along it, staggered like a wounded thing around the chimney, through the garden, and on, still clutching her heart, to the woods, there to sob it out on the breast of the only mother she had ever known. Dave was gone when she came back from the woods, calm, dry-eyed, pale, 
Her stepmother had kept her dinner for her, and when she said she wanted nothing to eat, the old woman answered something querulous, to which June made no answer, but went quietly to cleaning away the dishes. For a while she sat on the porch, and presently she went into her room, and for a few moments she rocked quietly at her window. Hale was going away the next day, and when he came back she would be gone, and she would never see him again. A dry sob shook her body of a sudden. She put both hands to her head, and with wild eyes she sprang to her feet, and catching up her bonnet, slipped noiselessly out the back door. With hands clenched tight, she forced herself to walk slowly across the footbridge, but when the bushes hit her, she broke into a run as though she were crazed in escaping a madhouse. At the foot of the spur, she turned swiftly up the mountain and climbed madly with one hand tight against the little cross at her throat. He was going away, and she must tell him. She must tell him. What? Behind her, a voice was calling. The voice that pleaded all one night for her not to leave him, that had made that plea a daily prayer, and it had come from an old man, wounded, broken in health and heart, and her father. Hale's face was before her, but that voice was behind her, and as she climbed, the face she was nearing grew fainter. The voice she was leaving sounded the louder in her ears, and when she reached the big pine, she dropped helplessly at the base of it, sobbing. With her tears, the madness slowly left her, the old determination came back, and at last, the old sad peace. The sunlight was slanting at a low angle when she rose to her feet and stood on the cliff overlooking the valley. Her lips parted as when she stood there first, and the tiny drops drying along the roots of her dull gold hair. And, being there for the last time, she thought of that time when she was first there ages ago. The great glare of light that she looked for then had come and gone. There was the smoking monster rushing into the valley and sending echoing shrieks through the hills. But there was no booted stranger, and no horse issuing from the covert of maple where the path disappeared. A long time she stood there, with a wandering look of farewell to every familiar thing before her, but not a tear came now. Only as she turned away at last, her breast heaved and fell with one long breath, and that was all. Passing the pine slowly, she stopped and turned back to it, unclasping the necklace from her throat. With trembling fingers she detached it from the little luck piece that Hale had given her, the tear of a fairy that had turned into a tiny cross of stone, when a strange messenger brought to the Virginia Valley the story of the crucifixion. The penknife was still in her pocket, and, opening it, she went behind the pine and dug a niche as high and as deep as she could towards its soft heart. In there she thrust the tiny symbol, whispering, I want all the luck you could ever give me, little cross, for him. Then she pulled the fibers down to cover it from sight, and, crossing her hands over the opening, she put her forehead against them and touched her lips to the tree. Keep it safe, old pine. Then she lifted her face, looking upward along its trunk to the blue sky, and bless him, dear God, and guard him evermore. She clutched her heart as she turned, and she was clutching it when she passed into the shadows below, leaving the old pine to whisper, when he passed, her love. Next day the word went around to the clan that the Tollivers would start in a body one week later for the west. At daybreak that morning, Uncle Billy and his wife mounted the old gray horse and rode up the river to say goodbye. They found the cabin in the lonesome cove deserted. 
Many things were left piled in the porch. The Tullivers had left, apparently, in a great hurry, and the two old people were much mystified. Not until noon did they learn what the matter was. Only the night before, a Tulliver had shot a Fallon, and the Fallons had gathered to get revenge on Judd that night. The warning word had been brought to the Lonesome Cove by Loretta Tulliver, and it had come straight from young Buck Fallon himself. So June and old Judd and Bub had fled in the night. At that hour they were on their way to the railroad, old Judd at the head of his clan, his right arm still bound to his side, his bushy beard low on his breast, June and Bub on horseback behind him. The rest strung out behind them, and in a wagon at the end, with all of her household effects, the little old woman in black, who would wait no longer for the red fox to arise from the dead. Loretta alone was missing. She was on her way with young Buck Fallon to the railroad on the other side of the mountains. Between them, not a living soul disturbed the dead stillness of Lonesome Cove. End chapter 31